But Galatians chapter 6, we're actually, let's begin the reading in verse 25 of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. And so, Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for mothers. Lord, thank you that you have shown us so many kindnesses that we don't deserve in this life. Lord, we pray you'd meet with us in this hour, make it profitable to our souls, speak to us, help us. Lord, help us in this day. You know the greatest needs that exist here. Pray you'd help us to understand this text. And Lord, it might be a growing reality in our church. Lord, I pray for Christ's sake and in His name. Amen. And so I'm not going to do much of an intro here. Just, uh, just to say, last week I did, I did mention that uh, to some degree, uh, the, the chapter break here, is, you know, some people believe it, it really should start in verse 25 of chapter 5. And that's, that's why I started the reading where I did. Because everything that follows verse 25 up to chapter 6, verse 10 pertains to, to what keeping in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, it pertains to that, what it looks like. With the obvious exception of verse 26 where Paul just sort of decides, you know, you know what, let's begin with a, let's begin with a serious failure or breakdown in keeping with the Spirit. A breakdown that results in these very self-centered expressions of conceit and provoking each other and even up in verse 15 the biting and devouring of each other however that's that's very short-lived because Paul immediately begins to instruct us on how a spirit-filled life is to be lived out in the midst of the church community where one is keeping in step with the spirit what, what, what's that look like well first on Paul's list here is how we respond or react to one another one another's lives when we sin. And we're just going to go through verse 1 today, spending time clarifying some of the terms expressed here and fleshing this thing out as we move along. Brothers, he begins, more appropriately, brethren. Uh, and this is to be understood as, as addressing the whole church, including the ladies including you mothers. That is the term that the NASB, the King James uses, which I much prefer because it sounds broader. Uh, Paul is addressing all the members of the family of God, the whole Christian community there throughout Galatia. He's not just addressing men here. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So starting off, I want to look at this phrase, if anyone's caught in any transgression. Anyone, any one of the brethren in the church body is caught in any transgression. That's, that's a pretty wide open, inclusive 
Those are terms, right? These, any, anyone, and any. Meaning, it doesn't matter which member it is in the church or what kind of transgression they commit. There should be this effort amongst the brethren to help restore such a one. Now, let's talk about this, this word translated caught. Because you could read this text in two different ways. Is the caught here that Paul was speaking of a, a being caught in the act of sin? Like, for example, the woman caught in John chapter 8. She got caught in the act of adultery, right? Or is the caught more of being suddenly subdued, surprisingly apprehended, ensnared by the sin itself? Kind of like what happened to Peter in the night our Lord was betrayed, right? Peter, in a moment of sudden fear, he denied the Lord. Which is it? The word caught is the Greek word prolambano, which is an interesting word. It only shows up three times in the New Testament. Here in this verse, and in Mark 14, and in 1 Corinthians 11, which Jeff was just talking about earlier. The natural reading of this verse, at least to me anyway, from our ESVs, can lead us to believe that this is talking about someone who's, who's engaged in sin and they got caught in the act of their sin. They got found out. However, I don't think that's how we want to read this verse and understand it. That's not to say that it necessarily excludes somebody getting caught in the act. But let's, let's look at this. Mark 14, if you would. Um, this is the passage that records the occasion when, when Mary, Martha's sister, anoints Jesus' body for his burial with this, this expensive ointment, this pure nard. You know, and some of the, some of the disciples, they raise a stink over this. And, uh, as, as being a waste. And Jesus defends her there in, in Mark 14, verse 6, and says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. Just pause for a moment there. <laughs> Just think about that, brother. Can you imagine Jesus regarding something you did and specifically saying that? is a beautiful thing. Jesus is saying that, openly saying that. That thing you just did is beautiful. I mean, that's, that talk about goosebumps running down your spine. I mean, can you imagine this? Imagine Mary being ridiculed by these men. These guys had some clout at this point. They've been walking with the Lord Jesus for three years plus. To hear them downplay, actually rebuke you for doing something as, as bad, as wrong. And, and for Jesus to respond with, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. I mean, that, is, that is precious. Anyway, moving on. In verse 8, Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And you and I know about this today because Jesus fulfills the promise He makes in verse 9. But, but that word beforehand in verse 8 is our word translated caught in, in Galatians 6.1. Prolambano. She has anointed my body prolambano for burial. 
And beforehand, that, that word translated lines up quite well with the definition of our word prolambano, which, which literally means to take before or to take in advance, which makes sense, right? He, he, she has taken my body before my burial and anointed it. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Look at this, this third time we, we see this word used in Scripture. Of course, this is the well-known chapter of the, of the, the much-debated head covering. We're not going to get into that. And then Paul addresses the Lord's table, addressing the manner in which these Corinthians were coming together to eat the Lord's table. And he says there in verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Can you guess which word is our word prolambano? Well, it's actually the phrase goes ahead with. Which again lines up with our definition to take before. There were certain brethren who were just being selfish gluttons really. Taking large portions of food and gobbling up all the food before everyone has a chance to get to it. And so, you know, some brethren went hungry. Others were stuffed, while others were stuffed to the rafters and, and, and apparently overdoing it with the wine too because they were getting drunk. I mean, can you imagine a Lord's table where you got people that are drunk? It was happening. So, so you get a sense of this word. It, it's, it's one of taking possession of something, taking it before, before something else is, is anticipated. So you can, you can turn back to Galatians 6. Mounts' Greek dictionary adds some shape to this definition, saying it means to take before another, to anticipate, to take by surprise, or be taken unexpectedly, or be overtaken. Young's Literal actually reads that. Brethren, if a man also may be overtaken in any trespass. The New King James reads, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass. So, so caught in and of itself is not a bad translation if you understand how it's being used here. It's not caught in terms of caught in the act of sinning. It's, it's caught by sin unexpectedly. Ensnared by surprise. The, the surprise being the sin. Not, not someone discovering you in your sin. Being overtaken by such a sin. Getting caught in it like, like an insect gets caught in a spider's web. They weren't planning that. Or, or, a, or an animal gets caught in a trap. I think a good analogy would be if, you, if you've ever watched much football. Um, you've seen the game where the running back busts through the line and there's nobody there but 50 yards of green grass. And the guy just out of adrenaline and anticipa- anticipation of a touchdown, he just steps on the gas. He heads to about the 45-yard line. And he gets a little confident, slow, starts to coast, takes, takes the foot off the accelerator, opens up his arms to celebrate in, in confidence of the touchdown. The football's out here in one hand, and all of a sudden, boom, gets jarred in the back because there's a cornerback who was on the other side of the field who had an angle on him who could run a 4-2-40, and he was not expecting that guy to come. 
he hits him, he coughs up the, fo- the football. Not only does he not score a touchdown, he turns the ball over to the other team. That's kind of the surprise we're talking about here. He was caught from behind by surprise. The tackler would be sin in the illustration. Or how about when you're driving? Everybody here can relate to this that drives. You're driving. You scan over to the right-hand mirror. Nobody's coming, right? So you just put the blinker on. You start to slowly drift over. And all of a sudden, onk, onk, and some guy goes flying by you. The car seemed to suddenly come out of nowhere. You were caught by surprise by this thing. The sin being the car that almost ended up in your passenger seat. When you're drifting over. But, but I like the football illustration because the being overtaken flows from pride and presumption. I've got this. And it results, yet it results in being tackled and fumbling the ball. This is what sin does in one's life. It, it tackles you and robs you from progress. It can get a hold of you and bring you down. Especially when you don't respect its ability to do so. And this is what Paul's addressing. Sin that has caught or tackled a brother or sister and brought them down. And based on the overall context of this letter, it makes perfect sense how and why a sinner in Paul's mind would be surprised by sin here, so much so that it overtakes them. I mean, what does the law do? It increases sin, right? We've talked about that. It strengthens sin. What does Paul say is the strength of sin or the power of sin in 1 Corinthians 15, 56? Yes, the power of sin is the law. So someone fixated on law can easily be overpowered by sin. In fact, we think we see that in Romans 7 with Paul. That's precisely what was manifesting itself in these Galatian churches. Brethren allowing false ideas, false teaching on the law to create this divisive conceit where there was this comparing with each other. Well, you know, I'm circumcised and you're not. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm observing days. Why aren't you? I mean, you, you just must not be as holy and spiritual as I am. See, law fixation started producing this, this biting, devouring, this provoking, this envying one another instead of loving one another. Now, let, let me clarify here. P- Paul is not talking about a brother who is living in sin, a brother or sister living in sin. I mean, that would be to completely undo what he just said in verses 19 through 21, right? In, in chapter 5. In fact, Paul's use of the word transgression here is instructive for us. This word transgression literally means a stumbling aside, a false step. You remember the illustration last week of the military soldiers that I gave? How marching, how how the soldiers march in line, marching in order, and, and, and doing so is descriptive of the phrase here, keeping in step with the Spirit. Verse 1, Paul is talking about a brother or sister who, who was marching in line in cadence with the church. And suddenly, 
got out of step. So suddenly, they, 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 they made a false step and they stumbled. How do we know when that happens? Well, just like you know, when you're watching the military men break rank when they're marching, right? You, you can notice the guy who does. You notice the guy who's out of step. You can see it. It's observable. It becomes an observable thing. Now, obviously, not all sin is observable. And, in fact, much of it is not. Much can be hidden, at least temporarily. But be assured of this, as Moses well said, your sin will find you out. It always does. And it might be, it might be that it'll find you out privately. But it will. And the Lord puts His finger on it. And He deals with your soul and your heart. And that's it and it's over. Often happens with us as Christians. Or sin might lay a hold of you and trap you and snare you to an extent where it requires some assistance in breaking free. And some of you fully know what I'm talking about. Because you've been there. You've been tackled at the three-yard line and laid out and fumbled the ball. And you felt like a fool. And you felt the shame of your foolishness laying there on the turf. Now what? How do I recover from this? I mean, how, how do I... How do I, how do I go and face my teammates on the sideline now? I mean, how do I, you know, after blowing something embarrassing like this, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to face my teammates? I mean, I'm probably going to be done. I'm probably going to get kicked off. The, what about the coach? What's the coach going to do? He's probably going to kick me off the team. Of course, the coach would be God in the illustration. The teammates being your brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, they were counting on me. And I let them down. How, how am I supposed to recover from something like this. Well, Paul is actually speaking about that type of scenario here. There's a, there's a built-in expectation in this verse that this, this is going to happen in the life of the church. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5 do indicate an opposing, an opposing forces at work within the Christian, underscoring the necessity of walking by the Spirit. Because you, Christian... You are capable of committing sin that would even surprise or shock you. You are capable of that. Your own flesh is capable of tackling you to the ground. And just like the player who loses the ball, you lose your progress and direction and suddenly this thing's going the other way. Christians can be overtaken by sin at times. The church is not a collection of, of the God or altogether self-righteous ones. It's a gathering of feeble, weak sinners who are saved by grace and are striving by that same grace to follow their precious Savior. And they need all the help they can get. And that's where the church body plays such a vital role into the endurance of you as a Christian in your Christian life. It's critical. And the Holy Spirit, what this verse teaches is the Holy Spirit uses His own people to help His own people out with their sin. 
That's what this teaches us. God's not, you're going to lay in your bed and God's going to zap you and it's over. God uses means. He's using one another, you and me, us. It's not a brother and sister's taken over by sin, so you know, go bury your head in the sand and don't do anything. I kind of ignore it. Or, you know what? Go tell the elders. They need to know. Now, there may be a time they, they do need to, but that's not the instruction here. It's not go and gossip about them. No, Paul says, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. You yourselves. That doesn't mean that maybe you get in a real tight situation and you don't know what to do and, you've been, and you want some counsel. And you, yeah, yeah, then you know, maybe you come to the elders. But this is something you're seeking to resolve as an individual in the church to help others. This is a call for all of us, brethren. Now, now when Paul says, you who are spiritual... We don't want to think Paul is, 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 is referring to some specialized status of Christians. I mean, the, the term spiritual, I, in fact, I, I think I used it earlier. It does tend to carry you know, some baggage in our modern day use of it. You know, the spiritual ones in the church. You know, the, the top level elite Christians. By spiritual, Paul simply means those who have the Spirit. That's it. Those who've been born again and are no longer living according to the flesh, but are living in step with the Spirit. Be what you've been made, people of the Spirit. In in other words, when, when when you're living your life, when you're in step with the Spirit, you will be in the business of rescuing and restoring brothers and sisters who get overtaken by sin because that's what the Spirit does. And the Spirit uses His people to do it. Restoration is not for the gossipers. It's not. It's not a task for those who are busybodies or those who are quarrelsome, those who are critical in spirit, those who love to get the dirt on people and you know, spread it around the church. No, it's, it's a call for those who are walking in the Spirit. Those, those, are, those are the ones that are to be doing the restoring which should be every Christian in a church. Should be. But sadly, it's true. I mean, we discover it, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul felt, Paul felt he was unable to even address the brethren there as, as spiritual people, he says. But rather, people of the flesh, or he calls them infants in Christ. Due to all the strife and jealousy amongst them, which is why you get all these heavy, heavy warnings that Paul issues in that letter. The people who commit such things and do such things, they won't inherit the kingdom. And so you who are spiritual is not, is not some elite group of Christians, but just simply those who are, are seeking to, to, to live dependent upon and responsive to the Spirit of God in their life. And if they are, they'll be, they'll be indeed those who are seeking to restore those who trip and fall around them. Now, this, this term restore, it means to, to, to knit together or to mend, to, to unite completely. In the secular Greek, it's actually a term that's it's used in the medical field to, to reset a bone that's been broke. Restoring the bone back to its original condition. So, so the restoring here it carries this idea of 
of restoring someone back to their original state, condition, state of being, true spiritual restoration. And that happens through us, through one another. Now, if you've ever, I don't know how many of you have broken a bone, but if you've ever broken a bone in, in your body, uh, what happens? <laughs> Is the rest of the body unaware of the break? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not quite. The whole body feels this thing. It's an illustration. The whole body is impacted by the break. And those of you that laugh have probably broken a bone. You know all about that. Every square inch of your body is aware of this. See, the body doesn't just sit there and not do anything. It immediately starts working to restore that member. I don't know all the science behind it, but that's what's happening inside your body. It's, trying to, it's going to that area, area that's been impacted and trying its best to, to, re, to restore it, to, to bring help. This word restoration, it's also, this word restore is also translated mending in Mark 1.19. When Jesus, when he first encounters, you don't have to turn there, when Jesus first encounters James and John, the scripture says they were in their boat and they were mending their nets which would have amounted to them just basically patching them up, tying them up, tying up the, loose end, the, the, the holes or tears that were created from their use so, that, so when they use them again, the fish don't escape. That's our word restore, same word, which, which is the perfect example because not only is the net being fixed or restored, but brethren, a net's being, being fixed so it can be useful again, right? And we'll say more on that in a minute, but... But the idea here is to, is to bring someone overtaken in sin back to the cross. Back to gospel grace. Back into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. To be cleansed, to be washed, to be renewed, to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to be placed right back in line with the marching soldiers in the army. Right back in cadence with the church body. And how is that to happen? Well, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's not enough just to restore, but we're to do so in a spirit of gentleness or, or by the Spirit's fruit of gentleness that we spoke about a few weeks ago. Paul feels it important to point out the kind or the, or the manner of restoration that should take place. It's to be done in gentleness. Obviously, contextually, that was the need of the hour in Galatia. I mean, it was sorely lacking amongst these churches. I mean, these brethren were responding to each other in self-righteous religious conceit, not in the gentle fruit of the Spirit. They were so caught up in their spiritual showmanship with their law-observing adherence that they were just consumed with it, looking down their noses at each other. And instead of handling struggling souls like clay pots that we are. They were treating each other like rag dolls. In all actuality, they were failing to treat others in light of themselves. That's always the issue. The way to avoid dealing with people in empty conceit is to view others in light of your own failings and your own weaknesses. Hence the warning here at the end of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 
But, but if we're restoring in step with the Spirit, you'll be doing so bearing the Spirit's fruit, this fruit of gentleness. You won't be doing so harshly, judgmentally. You know how you'll be doing it? You'll be doing it reflective of how the Lord has graciously dealt with you and gently dealt with you. I mean, that's the ultimate answer to the question, but how do we do this? How, how do we restore someone with a spirit of gentleness? You do it in the same way, in the very same manner that the, your Heavenly Father has gently dealt with you. And you know what? You, you end up really finding out about, about some. You, you really end up finding out some, uh, someone's uh, Christianity or religion in this situation. Because if you have no perception of how God's dealt with you, you, you don't have the capacity to restore other people. I mean, this is pictured for us in, in, the, in the Good Samaritan, right? And we have two examples of two self-consumed, self-righteous responses to those who are broken. And then we have this, this one guy, this one that, that he pictures a gentle, compassionate, loving heart. I mean, the priest walks by, he sees this guy, and he's a mess. But he doesn't, want, he doesn't want to get involved. I don't want to waste my time. I, I, I'm, I'm minding my own business. So he just passes right by the guy. I, I'm not getting no, no stinking Samaritan blood on my clothes. I mean, this is his problem. It's not mine. Well, then next strolling down the roads, this, this well-to-do Levite comes along. And you know, he was a marvelous grad down there at the school of the Sanhedrin. He's a summa cum laude and, and he was quite decorated and, and quite a distinguished man. He saw this guy and all his mess broken there, wallowing in his blood. You all right? You know, maybe you ought to see a doctor or something. And the guy lifts up his head and he's crying out help with his fat lip and and the Levite says, you a five-pointer? He's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, may the Lord bless you. Be well, be warm and filled. And he moves on down the road. James has something to say about such hollow blessings, right? These two men were in love, too in love with themselves to care about this guy. But there's this one fella he sees this man in his broken state and he tends to him and he binds up his wounds and he does so with oil and wine. I mean, he didn't spare any expense. At his own expense, he, he puts him on his donkey, he takes him to the inn and he sought to restore the man back to good health. I mean, that's a great physical picture of the spiritual reality that Paul presents to us here. Paul tells Titus, be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. And show perfect courtesy toward all people. That word courtesy is our word gentle, gentleness. What is gentleness? Well, we've talked about it, right? It's the overflow of humility and God's love shed abroad in the heart. Expressed. It's to be exhibited toward all people, Paul says. But especially toward those of the household of faith. I mean, if you're a, if you're a harsh, harsh person, you're hard to get along with, you're, you know, you're rough around the edges, or you think you're better than other people, you lack compassion, you're very judgmental. I mean, 
How could they be overtaken by that? I, I've never sinned. That, that's never been a problem in my life. I mean, I've, I've just never, you're going to have a tough time restoring people. None of that flows from the Spirit of God. That flows from the flesh. And, and flesh trying to restore that which has been ensnared by the flesh, that's, it's not going to work. In fact, it's a great test as to whether one has actually, actually is spiritual. The great test is if you are one of these people whom Paul is calling spiritual, there should be a readiness, an ableness to help those who stumble in a spirit of gentleness. It should be a reality in your life to some extent. It's not too hard to figure out why gentleness is needed in seeking to help others, restore others. Because there's, there's two typical extreme responses to someone who's caught or ensnared in sin, right? One, they're utterly broken over it. Praise God for that. That happens often. But you, but you also have a, the second extreme response to that, it, it, just the opposite. They're, they're hardened and they're defensive. In, in both cases, the caught party is in a very vulnerable place, which necessitates treading carefully and treating them gently, right? You don't want to provoke. In fact, regarding the latter example, I mean, let's just face it. Does everyone who, who's overtaken by a sin want to be restored? I wish that were the case, but it's not. And you know sin's got a grip when, the, when that tug of war is happening. What happens when the sought restoring is met with bristled defense? The person, you know, justifies their sin, doesn't really acknowledge it. That's very dangerous ground to be treading on, by the way. I, I, I saw this, this video clip a couple of days ago. This, this deer was caught in someone's net hammock. Scott, you'd have got a kick out of this. That for some reason, the hammock was pretty high off the ground, but it was a buck, had a good-sized rack on it, and he was all tangled up in this thing. But he, but he was... He had enough range. He was on his feet. He, he could move around quite a bit, but he was still all caught up. He wasn't going anywhere. And so this guy makes several attempts to grab him by the horns and cut him loose. And he, he puts up quite a fight. I mean, it got kind of dicey at times. I thought, why is this guy holding the camera? Get down there and help him. <laughs> this guy's gonna, the buck's going to kill the guy. <laughs> but the guy was simply trying to set him free. And yet all the buck saw was nothing but intrusive danger. And what a picture of what we're talking about here. You, you might have very good intentions, but the tangled up one may not view it that way at all. Because they feel trapped and therefore they get defensive. Making careful gentleness necessary. Firmness, yes but not void of gentleness. The reason Paul exhorts us to seek such restoration with gentleness is because, brethren, deceitfulness hardens the heart. The deceitfulness of sin hardens the heart. And hardened hearts don't easily receive rebuke or correction. Listen, you know that by your own experience. 
I mean, when your spouse has taken it upon themselves to point out your sin in your life, that usually is not received with goosebumps and butterflies, is it? No. I mean, you don't typically blurt, blurt out, oh, thank you, honey bun and, and sugar pie and baby cakes or whatever your name is, schmoopy or whatever it is. You're not really, it's really not an, an endear, term of endearment is used at that time, right? Thank you for such a, a loving, faithful rebuke, honey. But now, listen, ultimately, if you're a Christian and, and you were in sin, you do end up being thankful for such, don't you? Thankful for God putting someone in your life to address and correct you when you need it. That, that is a, brethren, that is a mercy from God and a demonstration of His faithfulness to your soul. And maybe it's not a spouse. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a parent for you or, or a child or a friend. Brethren, those experiences should teach us the importance of going after others when they too need to be helped and corrected. Brethren, we've got to be faithful to people's souls. But our interaction and treatment of brethren should flow out of our perception of how God has treated us, how He's dealt with us. In fact, it does, really. I mean, do you realize that the Lord in very gentle fashion and gentle grace comes upon you every time you sin. Every time you sin, He enables you. The Lord Himself enables you to respond in confession and repentance. The Lord Himself keeps you from justifying it. Keeps you from pursuing it. Every single sin you commit has potential of causing you to drift away from the living God. It's nothing but the mercy of God intervening, coming upon your heart and causing you to see that thing, identify that thing, and hate that thing like He does. Because if God's removed from the picture, you're gone. You're fumbling the ball. You're out of the game. What mercy the Lord has shown us. Jesus says, in the prayer there, He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? I really think we should thank God daily for His active deliverances from temptations. From evil arresting us and tackling us to the ground. There's potential for it every day. Now, there is a time to be tough. That guy finally did get bold enough and, and grab a hold of that buck and said, you know what? You're not winning this battle. I am. I'm going to set you free. And he, and he did. But, but part of the, the offshoot of walking in step with the Spirit is God granting us the discernment to know when which is needed. You know, toughness or gentleness. But, but for the most part, brethren, gentleness should be our mode of operation the general manner of all our efforts to, to correct and restore. But furthermore, the fulfillment of this for, for, for us as a church requires not only gentleness, it requires that you actually be involved and engaged in the life of the body here. The fulfillment of this command requires you to get out of yourself and into the lives of others. I mean, you can't, you can't notice a soldier that's out of step if you're not with the soldiers, right? 
This verse totally destroys Lone Ranger Christianity. I mean, that, that doesn't even exist in Paul's mind. Now, that doesn't mean God is calling you to be a busybody and get into everybody's business and you know, seek to discover everything, everything that's wrong with your brothers and sisters in the church. As I said, this is not a call for the critical in spirit or fault finders and those who think they're endowed with a gift of a you know, soul inspector. It, that's not what this is. Now, this, this verse simply implies that you're involved enough in the church, in the life of the church, that you actually become aware when, when someone steps aside. Make, makes a false step, misses a meeting. You know, it seems to be withdrawn. They, they're just, uh, they're not themselves. You know, something, something's changed about the pattern of their life. They're exhibiting some kind of behavior that calls for our attention. And, and brethren, let me just add, that's an impossible task for a pastor to do alone. It is. Regardless of the size of the flock. In fact, we don't even know the size of these churches that Paul's addressing here. But notice, again, Paul, whom Paul is addressing. Brethren. It's not shepherds. It's not elders. It's not deacons. It's brethren. It's the whole church. This is to be a church-wide effort. A church-wide ministry and responsibility. Yes, for sure, pastors have their place in this. I'm not seeking to dismiss that. I only want to emphasize who Paul is actually addressing here. He's addressing the whole church. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, adopted into the family of God, as he sets forth there in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that does make you your brother and sister's keeper. It does. It's not something we can treat as no big deal. Not my problem, not getting involved. Just like the, the priest there, the Levite. I mean, that, that's American selfish individualism speaking right there. That's not New Covenant. New Covenant's in step with the Spirit grace. Listen, your brother and your sister's sin is your problem. It's your problem to bear with and it's your problem to help them with. That's what love does. That's exactly what Paul says in the next verse, right? Bear one another's burdens. I mean, Cain asked the Lord the question, am I my brother's keeper? Assuming he wasn't. But Scripture most assuredly teaches us we are. At least we are in the Lord. And really, this reality underscores the importance of church membership. It's an acknowledgement that you understand and believe this. That you bear a responsibility before God concerning the welfare of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know that this, this, this might step on some toes here, but brethren you've actually got a greater responsibility before God for your brothers and sisters in Christ that you've entered into covenant with here in this local body than you do your cousins or nephews or nieces or aunts and uncles. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Do, do you live that? Jesus' blood carries greater weight than your biological blood. 
Jesus himself made that abundantly clear when his own relatives sought to get his attention in the middle of teaching. And of all things, he says to those that are in the presence who are are wanting to shut down the show to to prioritize that relationship, Jesus says, wait, hold a minute. Those who do the will of God, that's that's my brother. That's my sister. That's my mother. How many people would accuse Jesus right there of dishonoring his mother? In fact, the family thought he was crazy. A few verses back. Thought he was losing his mind. Because his kingdom is not of this world, you see. And those words cut strong against the grain of our 21st century culture. A culture steeped in just individualistic, self-consumed, non-committed, easily offended mindsets where I, you know, if I run into a problem I don't like, I'm out. Out of here. I'm done. Forget you. I'm going to go set up my own utopia that's agreeable to me and acceptable to me. I don't have, I don't have time to deal with other people's problems. I, in fact, I'm looking for a problem, problem-free life. You don't have that luxury in the New Covenant community. That's completely foreign to the most basic fundamentals of Jesus' kingdom. That is not loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself seeks your neighbor's restoration. And seeking their restoration, it doesn't end with just getting the sin to stop, you see. You recall I mentioned this word restore. It carries with it the idea of fixing so as to be useful again, right? One who's over, been overtaken needs the loving care of the body to help in this recovery process. It, listen, it takes time for something that's broken to heal. It, it doesn't happen overnight. And, and this healing is aimed at making one useful and fruitful again. I remember when, when Hope broke her wrist at the end of her junior year. And uh, it was in the spring. Her senior year was coming that fall. And I needed her serving wrist to heal quickly. Because not only was she my daughter, she happened to be a major component to the volleyball team that I was coaching. And I coached to win, not just to play. <laughs> I'll just confess that. <laughs> I knew from the previous season what, what, what I was dealing with, what was coming back. And I, I knew that we were not winning without her. And so we got this thing going. She, she slowly nurses this thing back to strength so she could play. My, my point being, the goal of restoring her wrist was not just so she could sit on the sidelines and cheer, but so she could actually get right back on the floor and not just play, but excel. which needed to happen if we were going to go anywhere as a team. And by God's kindness, we did. We made the playoffs. But, but this is true for the church also. Brethren, restoration aims at restoring usefulness. It's not just recovering from sin and you know, kind of holding this thing over their head a little bit. And you know, go ahead and take a seat back there somewhere. And, you, know, okay, you can be in our midst. We'll tolerate you for a little bit. But just don't get too involved, too, too active. You know, it's just, no, you're recovered. Now get out there and serve the ball. Just don't hit it in the net or out of bounds. (laughs) Obviously, there are consequences to sin. 
And, and the mended net is mended for usefulness again, but the reality is it, it may or may not carry the exact same usefulness. Um, I mean, sin brings pain, sorrow, discomfort, consequences. And we don't want to forget that. Brethren, let that reality alone be a deterrent of sin in your life. Knowing there's a real cost to this thing, real cost, that my sin just doesn't impact me, but it impacts the body of Jesus Christ. I mean, live life respecting the body, the whole body. And there's so much more that could be said here on usefulness and consequences, but... But I want to finish up our time looking at this last statement in verse 1. Keep, yourself, or keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, now, what ways would I be tempted in seeking to restore others? Well, Paul doesn't exactly say, does he? I, I think he purposely leaves this wide open because the temptations here can be many, Right? I think, number one, I think the obvious one is the danger of you being tempted by the exact same sin you're seeking to recover a brother or sister from. I mean, you can be spiritual. You can be sympathetically gentle. You can be those things. But if you don't take proper caution and live in proper awareness of your own weakness, you might find yourself also breaking rank. Getting tackled at the free yard line. Being, being laid out on the side of the road in, in need of help. I mean, brothers, it's just, brethren, the last, especially it seems like the last 10 years, the list just grows and grows of pastors and people in ministry who's fallen into this sin and that sin. And, and just oftentimes it's when they're seeking to restore someone and deal with the, the, the exact same sin. Be careful. I'm preaching to myself. Be careful. Be watchful. Be appropriately distrustful of your own abilities not to be ensnared by sin. We need to seriously guard our hearts when we're seeking to help others. How about, secondly, how about being tempted to not deal honestly with a brother or sister well, because you don't want them to, you don't want to get them upset, and you want them to like you. I mean, we might hear that and think it's petty, but I think that's a real temptation that, that sadly many people cave to. Listen, resetting a broken bone—it's painful. It's a painful experience, but a necessary one if you're going to be healed. And it requires carefulness, precision. It requires gentleness. But pain must happen in order for the healing to happen. I mean, truth is, there, there's some believers walking around today with some kind of spiritual limp because others in their life failed to be faithful to their soul out of fear how they might respond. Brethren, don't let that be you. Be the difference maker. Uh, thirdly, how about, I mentioned that you know, some may be broken over their sin. Thank God for that. But others may not. And may not be receptive. 
receptive to it at all, to, to, the, to the attempt to restore. I mean, how about the temptation after having attempted multiple times in step with the Spirit and in gentleness, it's met with resistance or, or no change? Well, besides the fact Matthew 18 process should begin, isn't there the temptation? Well, I think there's a couple here. One, one, the temptation to resort to harshness. I mean, my attempts to help are not being appreciated. I mean, I'm going to really let them have it then. I, I think when people resist our help, the fleshly tendency is to respond being offended, being frustrated. But, but secondly, the temptation is to take the failed counsel or, or the attempt to restore personally. Where the, the issue is really no longer about them, but about me and my ability to, to succeed in, re, in recovering people. Well, why didn't you just, I mean, come on, why didn't you just follow my brilliant counsel? And so the thing turns out, t- turns into some, in, in being personally offended due to your own pride, which is a good segue into this last temptation. Because I, I think this is also a temptation that this, 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 and this would certainly fit into the context here of the letter. The temptation towards vain conceit or, or empty glory over successfully recovering a brother or sister being overtaken by sin. Right? The danger of thinking yourself to be something when you're really nothing. That's exactly what Paul says there in verse 3. That's, that's a temptation for sure. Slapping yourself on the back. Well, in closing, I want to remind us again that, brethren, this is aimed at all of us, each, each member here. And, and please, don't, don't underestimate the value of your input in the lives of other Christians. Don't do that. And, and being the means, the means of God to not only restore people back to a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and back into the fellowship with the saints, but also being a means of preventing one from being caught or overtaken by sin. Being the means of preventing maybe a debilitating depression or, or discouragement in the life of another or preventing one from actually falling away. Yes, you God can and does intend to use you. Enough with belittling yourself. Well, I'm not this and I'm not that and you know, I don't teach and I'm not good at this kind of thing. And Enough of that. Yes, you're a mess. We're a mess. We're all a mess. We're all in the same boat, right? That doesn't stop God from using us in one another's lives. It doesn't. In fact, that can be the very reason for your usefulness because you're not likely going to be the one who's slapping yourself on the back. You'd be kind of like, what? He he used that? You see, God gives grace to the humble, not to the one who thinks he's got everything. He gives grace to the one who's desperate for help. And he, he gives it to do what he calls us to do. This is a command for us. So you could step forward, not because you could feel confident in your abilities or you know, you, get, you know the right thing to say. You could step forward saying, Lord, you're telling me to do this, so give me grace because I'm going to obey you. This is the mission he's given us, brethren, as a church, to restore brethren who are overtaken 
by sin. For the sake of time, I was going to make a reference to Mark 16. This will be a homework assignment. Go to Mark 16, 7 when you get home. I want you to think upon that verse and think about just the very gentle and subtle ways that Jesus demonstrated gentleness in restoring Peter. It's absolutely a glorious text. I preached on it like, I don't know, six or seven years ago. But Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. Lord, the countless times that You have restored us and kept us, Lord, from being ensnared, from being tackled, Lord, from being brought down. Lord, thank You. Praise You. And Lord, times where we have fallen and we fumbled the ball and things were going the opposite way, Lord, You've rescued us. Lord, we praise Your holy name for that. Thank You, Lord, for enduring grace. Thank You for, Lord, causing us to persevere. Thank You for Your work of sanctification. Lord, would You help us to be mindful of one another. Help this this be a growing reality of in this church, Lord, of of restorers of souls. Lord, we pray it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.